Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. This podcast is brought to you by Innate. We hear it from our podcast guests frequently. Today's capital projects require the highest degree of visibility. That's why we at the Project Chatter podcast want to tell you about construction project management software from Innate. It's software that integrates every aspect of your project and puts you in control. Innate's cloud-based solutions provide a connected data flow that improves efficiency and guides better outcomes across the entire project lifecycle. See what Innate software can do for your next construction project. Learn more at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T dot com. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Is your company proactive when it comes to scheduling? Many companies believe project schedules are just the requirements of the contract, but companies looking to gain an advantage strategically manage their project timeline, resources, and budget. Plan Academy helps construction companies improve their project controls through immersive online training courses. At Plan Academy, your team can learn construction, planning and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and can save your company thousands when compared to costly in-person training. Visit planacademy.com forward slash chatter to download course outlines and talk to a training specialist now. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by justdo.com. Justdo is a great business and project management tool we've been using here at Project Chatter. I agree, Val. I like to keep things simple and Justdo is perfect for that. But I do know it's got a lot of powerful functionality as well. And one of my favorites is the task-specific chat. Absolutely. And for all you slackers, don't wait for Monday. Check out justdo.com. Now on with the pod. On this week's pod, we have welcomed Debbie Sunarayan to discuss the four moves in the VUCA world of projects. Debbie works with organizations and leadership teams across the world to help them navigate turbulent, volatile, and sometimes chaotic environments. It was an amazing pod, Val. What were your favorite bits? Look, to be honest, I think the whole pod was really interesting because I really feel like she really understood strategy, culture, innovation, and that movement. And and those pieces that really spoke to me was around setting up the meta tribe. I don't want to give too much away, but how culture is a really important point of moving hearts and minds and getting projects on the right track. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. We don't want to give too much away, but those four moves, we went down uh many or peeled many layers went down many rabbit holes got many nuggets out of them no triangles in this one folks but we do have a a square i guess with the four moves and four sides um but yeah i agree with you meta tribes was amazing um but just also just her general experience and overview and the way she looks at things and she and she really brought the saying of um diversity of thought to life in this podcast and mm. what it actually means for projects So folks, go ahead, have a listen, and enjoy the pod. Hello, Project people. Welcome to a new episode of the Project Chatter podcast. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast player and YouTube if you have or would like to see our friendly faces. I don't know if that's true, Dale, but someone's put that in my script here. Um, Dale, how are you after the win for England? Uh, What win? What England? Is there something going on at the moment? 
<laughs> I heard football was playing. I don't know. I don't watch it. I'm what Australian. type of football? American Association, Pretty... rugby football. Which one? Well, we 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 call it soccer, don't we? Oh, we soccer. soccer. Oh, that yeah, one. Soccer. The one with the round ball yeah. that they kick. Oh yes. And they fall no. over for no reason. That one. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well done to England to getting through to the final. It's it's been amazing being in England, and you know, I think every country in the world is kind of like anyone but England. You know, everyone loves to hate England when it comes to sports. I know that. But um, having lived here for such a long time, it, it's been nice to see, you know, the English have something to celebrate in sports. So it's been, it's been great. Exactly. Yeah, well done. Well done. Pat yourself on the back. Have a beer. <laughs> um, look, let's get into it. Uh, I'd love to say hello to our guest today. We're joined by Debbie Sunarine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Suffering a little because of last night and being an England fan. But yeah, thank you for having me. You are a brave soul. And by the way, for anyone listening, I got that name right. I hope yeah, you did. First time. Might, I did. Fantastic. Well, look, onwards and upwards in season four, I might actually learn the English language. Now, let's get into it. So I, I really want to get into this subject because I've, I've, we've had a few guests on it, but they haven't really quantified it. And I really want to ask you um, straight off the bat, if we talk about VUCA, B-U-C-A for those listening, what is it? Or what's your definition of it? And how do you see it applied to projects? Right. So... VUCA, um, I mean, it's banded around loads. You hear loads of people talking about it in organizations um, flippantly quite often. But really what it's talking about is the fact that the strategic context that we operate in is volatile, uncertain, unpredictable, complex and ambiguous, um, and is really fast changing beneath our feet as we're trying to do anything, whether that be a project, sort out a strategy, developer, culture, all of those sorts of things. Um, the big problem in lots of organizations is it's talked about, but it's not really thought about in terms of, okay, how do we do those things in a different way while this kind of strategic context is around us? And let's face it, the last 18 months is mm. an extreme example of it, a really extreme example of it. So yeah, that that's what it's all about, really, working in that really fast changing i call it the post-truth fast show um that, that's how yeah. i kind of quantify VUCA. yeah that's uh it's really good i i yeah i mean last 18 months you, you're completely right debbie it's, it's almost hard to think that there was a world that was normal before that or even we benchmark the world before it as normal because uh everything has been turned on its head and yet we're still delivering projects you know there's there's so much going on yeah, we can still see some of the fabric that's going to be delivering us through this economy problem, through this health crisis, is actually these massive projects that are underway all around the world, right? It's not just um, down south or, or where you guys live. It's it's all over the place. Um, they're really using them to, I guess, sustain people's sanity in a way. But how is VUCA affecting people's mental health? Does that does that play a role in that? Yeah, for, for sure. I think the more... Um the more uncertainty that you've got around you, the more um, you can tend to try and control things, which mm. actually can make it even harder to deal with the uncertainty. So sometimes your natural reaction to lots of uncertainty and unpredictability and volatility is to try and grab something that you can control, um, but actually there's less around you that you can control. And sometimes it's, it's almost more helpful to surrender to it a little bit or to think about some of the options within it. Um, and so kind of in life 
if you think about just life in general, we, we kind of operate on an autopilot, really, which helps us get through. You know, we're efficient as human beings. We, we mm. have a load of rules in our head, all of that kind of stuff. And when everything changes around us fast and in ways that we didn't predict or in ways that we couldn't predict, because some of this stuff is unknown unknowns or even unknowable unknowns, all of a sudden those predetermined ways of operating, those kind of decisions don't work anymore. So as, a, as an individual human being, that happens. And then if you imagine an organization is a lot of individual human beings come together. So, you know, that's amplified. Mm. And when they're in the throes of that, organizations find it quite hard to stop and think because they feel like they've kind of got to keep paddling um, to make things happen and, and keep moving. And quite often it might be that they're going in completely the wrong direction. And, you know, things have changed around them so much that, Maybe they need a pause and a moment to think. Yeah, no, good points. I mean, I think, um, I mean, well, I wonder as well around training and development and why VUCA, I mean, I, I seem to be comfortable with VUCA and, and maybe it is a bit more mainstream now, but we I remember even when we started the podcast, Al, that the VUCA and there was another one, uh, Dance, I think it was by Jack Dugard. Jack Dougal. We had on yeah. Dougal. I don't think I'll come Somewhere across Dance. What's that one then? Well, Dance is Jack's take on VUCA, I think. Right. In, my very um, minimal remembering or memory frame, but he had a book out and it's, it's a great book. Actually, I will, I'll gift it to you, Debbie. That's what I'll do after the show. I'll get you a book. Um, shout out Thank to Jack. You. He's a good guy. And um, you know, it was, it was hard to see that. Uh, this is the challenge I think we have in project management is that our, our texts and our institutes don't reflect reality. And when we train people for projects, we don't talk about in sense of VUCA. We talk about in sense of process. Yeah. And it's almost like a value chain in a production line. And it's always about end to end. And every project I've ever been on, there's never been a process end to end ever. Yeah. Ever. <clears throat> and now if anyone wants to debate me, please LinkedIn. I love debating. Uh, so does Dale. So now we're getting a bit rough and tumble in season four. We want to hear from you guys. If you think your project has an end to end process, get in touch with Debbie and me and Dale and Martin. Because I think um, we, we need to just uncover, you know, lift the stones and, and see what does work and what doesn't work. And I would love to hear your perspective on, um, is VUCA something that's trained and taught or you feel the same as me? Yeah, it, well, it is talked about and it is um, included in a lot of kind of leadership training and up and coming leadership training. I don't know if it's so much in um, project focused learning and development. I've not seen it so much there. Um, but I think what happens is I think it's separated. So if you think about it, a lot of leadership development and, you know, up and coming leaders development is focused on strategy and getting people comfortable with devising strategy, talking about strategy and, and implementing a strategy. And often, um, you know, a whole bunch of projects roll up into a program to implement that strategy and that kind of gets missed so you end up with um, a, a very senior group talking about the volatility and you know strategic options and so on and even that group quite often don't come up with a range of strategic options so a supple strategy if you like it's still quite a rigid strategy we're going to get from here to here in five years and here's how we're going to do it which similar to a big program it's not going to happen because the world's going to change in the five years in which you think your strategy is going to be put into place um, but then when it drops 
into that kind of program, um, you know, program management office design and, and delivery and so on, that kind of gets lost and you end up, I think Agile's improved it, but you end up with a, a suite of projects that form a program that's kind of over three years or five years. And there are minimal checks quite often to see if the destination that we thought was a good destination is still a good destination. Um, and, and it's almost as if organizations feel very, very uncomfortable about perhaps having to change course or turn around, you know, and do something different. Sometimes it's the right thing to do. It's different. You've got to do it in the right way, but sometimes it's the right thing to do. But, you know, a three-year yeah. program, a five-year program, we are kidding ourselves. I think, again, I'd love to hear from, from um, people that listen to your podcast, but typically we are kidding ourselves if we think the world is going to be the same in three or five years. And that's in normal times, let alone what's happened over the last 18 months. So good, Debbie. I, I just recall a project, maybe Martin and Dale can recall as well, where there was a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity. And my take on it was in the PMO space was to stop, just stop, just stop working because there's this, especially on big projects, there's this momentum, momentum to just keep moving forward regardless, right? And then, you know, they want you to continuously improve while they move forward. But we all know you can't continuously improve something that's broken, right? You, you can only improve something that's good. And so it doesn't work. And yet no one's willing to be brave enough, I think, like you said, just to wait, stop, or change direction, or at least consider other options or why we're we moving forward in the first place. And I think that's a really good point that you put on. Dale? Yeah, so, so just to clarify on your comments there, Val, so you're saying if something's broken and it's continuously being broken, you can't fix it while it's continuously being broke, right? Just to clarify. Because right, if, yeah, if, if you stopped and you said, right, actually, okay, it's broken now, recognize, then you can fix the broken pieces. I, I, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Just for those listening in, it was episode 27 with Jack Dougal. And Boom. dance or dance in his American accent was dynamic and changing for D. A is ambiguous and uncertain. N, nonlinear and unpredictable. C, complex. E, emergent. So go back, folks, and have a listen to episode 27. It was amazing. And Jack's got a book out as well. But so has Debbie um, called Shapeshifter, Shape um, which we'll talk about a little bit because in that book, you talk about four moves. And yeah. I guess that's the hook for this episode, Debbie, is everyone's listening in go, what are those four moves, four moves. Debbie? <laughs> How can I use them? How <laughs> well, can I really I hope I'm not going to disappoint because you might well say, well, that's common sense. Um, so four moves. The, the big thing, I think, in the shapeshifter organization. So just to say, first of all, that the organizations that I kind of look at and think of as shapeshifters are organizations that navigate disrupt, disruption really well. Yeah. So they're facing disruption. They navigate it well. Um, or they're very aware disruption is coming and they're thinking about how they can navigate that well, or even more so, they become the disruptors. <clears throat> so they become the shapeshifters. They create the new markets, create the new products, all of those sorts of things. And the four things that those organizations do well is that in terms of strategy, so the first one is strategy, but they do it differently um, and they do it better. Um, instead of having a rigid strategy from here to there over a period of time, and this is our one route, and this is what we're going to do, and we're all going to get behind it and so on, 
they actually use scenario planning and what if worlds. So they get very creative, look into the future, not trying to predict it, but just trying to get a sense of what could be, what's plausible, what's feasible, what might be challenging to what they think their strategy is. And then they actually create a range of possible paths. And the whole time then they're watching out with a load of indicators to try, you know, with their horizon scanning to get a sense of what's actually happening. Now, the odds of getting that right are low. So, you, you know, you're really not predicting, but the beauty of doing the exercise is that you have a whole range of options at your disposal. You're talking about it regularly and you're watching. So you get a sense of that VUCA or dance um, around you as it's happening a bit quicker. So that's the first thing they do. And they do it differently. They all do it uniquely. So it's not like a cookie cutter. They all do the same thing, but they all do that particular thing along those lines, but in their own particular unique way. Um, the other thing, the second thing they do is they create a really compelling culture. And the thing that's different here is that in each of these organizations that are really successful and create, you know, a different market, different products and so on, is that they create a culture that completely transcends all of the subcultures in the organization. So they respect all of those subcultures. They celebrate them. Um, you know, all, all of the subcultures are still there where they're helpful, <clears throat> but they create something that transcends all of that. And I call that meta tribes. They, they pull a tribe together that transcends all of that. Third thing they do is innovation. And typically, again, it's done a bit differently. They find a wicked problem. So they find an issue that's really complex, um, far ranging, you know, lots of stakeholders involved, um, difficult, actually impossible to solve. You can just make a difference to it. And they think about it really differently. So they kind of lift up out of the current paradigm of thinking. So they, they kind of use the what if worlds to look at these as well and think about, okay, how do we go beyond the way that this particular problem has been thought about up until now? And as a result, they end up with a cause, a purpose that they can use that helps to power the culture, helps to drive the strategy. And final move is helps them to build a magical movement that is purpose-powered, cause-driven. So all the four, they kind of, they kind of happen simultaneously in a strange way but quite often in an organization you kind of need to look and think what where where are you and what do you need to do first yeah because something it's a bit like you're saying about the projects or a program something's more broken than something else some of these things you can do in flight some of these things you need to take a bit of a pause strategy for example you need to take a little bit of a, a pause and think about it um, but those are the four things that they do slightly different, well, quite a bit differently, really well and uniquely. So they're not just copying one another. They're, they're bold enough to be different about it. That is awesome. And that gives us a whole plethora of avenues to go down because yeah. I was just writing down vigorously <laughs> as you were talking there. So just to go back, supple strategy, meta tribes, wicked problems and wicked thinking and creating magical movements is what I yeah. wrote down. Um, yeah. So let's start at the top supple strategy and you talk about scenario planning and pausing and taking the time yeah. to actually do that i guess what you're saying is in your experience not a lot of organizations actually do that and to val's earlier point when projects are in flight projects in the project environment you find it even more difficult to stop because time is money even more so on a project right and you've got 
you know, that profit margin to hit. So the earlier you can deliver, the more profit you make, depending on your contractual setup, obviously, but generally speaking, right? Yeah. Um, so those that come from that space and go, well, Debbie, actually, that's great. It's very nice. Don't part. have the time. Yeah. What do you say to that? Um, it's tough. It is really tough, but it's a bit like you were saying earlier, how many projects do you know that have actually followed the process that you expected or delivered the outcome that you first thought you wanted and how many walls have you run into in the process as you're going along? Um, and that costs money and that costs time and it costs morale. So taking you know, sometimes just a day or a couple of days out to think as a team and get a sense of what's actually happening here how might this future unfold differently is so incredibly powerful. And you, you get um, a different level of creativity, not just around that, but around all the little issues that are going on in that program as well. No, that's interesting. And, and have you gone in and helped organizations and applied this in projects and, and it's made a difference? Do you have any examples you could share? It's, so in, in organizations that I work with, it's typically the leadership team that I'm working with that are looking at, you know, how how's the organization going to fare in a particular future? But that drops down into a massive program of change. So what often happens is, you know, an organization will bring in a big consultancy. They'll have a conversation about strategy. They'll decide we want to go in X direction or <laughs> we want to do a swerve and, and go in a completely different direction. And let's build a big program around that with a number of streams and, um, and, you know, more forward thinking organizations might do some of that in quite an agile way, but many organizations are still doing proper full on waterfall five years time. We want to be here. Um, and that drops down. And then you've got all the budget processes that sit around that, that you've mentioned. So even at the strategic, really strategic level, you know, the financial process, the financial reporting process every year has an impact on that ability to think more creatively. But then what happens is reality strikes. So you're, you're forced to slow down or you're forced to pause. You know, the market goes in a direction you didn't expect it to, or you can't get the resources that you said you wanted to get, or the, I don't know, the, the SI or whatever that you've brought in isn't able to do what they told you they could do. And none of these things have really been thought through. It's been assumed that it will follow a process. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of the organizations I work with, although it's kind of talking more at the strategic level, it has a massive direct impact on those programs because you're already looking out for some of the things that might happen. Yeah, yeah? No, that, 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 is, that is very, very fascinating. It's a way of thinking. Yes, yes. Yeah. And um, it's, it's how we change our thinking as well. And you mentioned, you know, the past 18 months or so in COVID. And I think if there's one thing that organizations have learned, I guess the buzzword pivot, is yeah. that even large organizations can pivot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's pirouette so, really, isn't it? I mean, it's been crazy. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> you know, how to take, you know, thousands and thousands of employees from the office, work from home and things yeah. continue. Well, there's an example. You you can you don't you know you know you can pause for a brief moment in time and change the way you do things, and things are okay. And perhaps it's a bit of fear sometimes. And we also hear of this hubris. I think that's how you pronounce it, hubris type leadership, where you know these leaders that have typically made the right decisions on their yeah. way to being senior leaders 
think that they always make the right decisions. And henceforth, they don't often listen to those around them, particularly in large organizations. And so that brings me on to your point where, you know, you kind of typically work with the senior leaders. And Paul Gooch, who's a great friend of the podcast, he mentions, well, if culture is really influenced from middle management outwards, is that where we should be focusing rather to get to get it right there? That's the nucleus. So I wonder what's your take on that, yeah. if you have a challenge on that? Well, I, I probably violently agree in many ways. So um, in order to get an organization thinking differently and to get the mandate, if you like, for the organization to think differently, you've kind of got to start with senior leadership. you know to get that credibility through the organization otherwise everything you do potentially goes up and and hits a ceiling however um, again one of the big problems I see in organizations is that leadership kind of just gets confined there Um, decision making gets confined there you know you see all the decisions going up a stovepipe the the amount of governance um, Mm. on you know some programs is just astounding and you you ask about why is why is this person here making that decision Oh, because it's always, you know, always goes up here. Well, why? It's like, it's five pounds or, you know, something, (laughs) just a huge amount of governance. So it's really important, actually, particularly when, when, you know, you're getting into that strategic conversation and also the cultural conversation and also the thinking about wicked problems to be as inclusive as you possibly can across the organization and get everyone to be operating as a leader. So you end up with devolved leadership you end up with principle-based decision-making that's focusing on a particular cause or a particular direction rather than a, a core outcome that might need to change as things change around you. So I think I, I agree with, with um, what you're saying. You know, you need to get everybody in the organization thinking as a leader and taking their informal leadership and their informal influence and making a difference with that and giving that kind of... Um, autonomy now that's that can be fit that can create real fear in an organization because obviously you know you've, you've lost a bit of control yeah no, but absolutely. you're much more likely to get alignment in the long run yeah exactly exactly yeah. And, and, and sometimes it's you know we talk about you know leaders ha- having to or wanting to or required to be vulnerable at times and yes. I think a lot of a lot of leaders struggle with that because they yeah. don't know how to be vulnerable yeah. at times and it's quite interesting because then that leads me on to culture as well, which is your next point. Let's call it move number two. Um, and you talk about meta tribes, which is this, you know, this overarching culture, which doesn't um, disclude um, other cultures. It embraces them. Yep. But there's one sort of overriding. If we're going to do this together, yeah. this is our overriding framework. But within that, there's the freedom to, you know, embrace whichever culture you want and I like that idea but then again you know if we're saying leaders set the tone for culture the framework for culture are they equipped to do that are they equipped to create this meta tribe or is there a lot of work that we still need to do and if there is a lot of work those leaders that might might be happening to listening to this podcast what can you share with them to say look out for this maybe look out for that yeah so it, it depends, I think, is, is the answer. Some leaders are far more willing and able, and a lot of this is about willingness um, to kind of engage in a different way than other leaders, and, and you'd expect that. Um, 
it's kind of it's it's getting people to do exactly as you say show a bit of vulnerability but also test assumptions ask the difficult questions um create an environment where people can you know turn around and say do you know this particular thing that's going on here is creating a real issue here on the ground and for that person not to be seen as negative I often talk about yurtle the turtle syndrome um you know Dr Zeus with the person at the top kind of saying oh, the, the turtle at the top saying I want to get higher higher and higher because I can see further and everything I can see is my kingdom um and and poor little Mac at the bottom who's the other turtle at, below all of these others is is basically being crushed because you know that that there's no connection between the two so things like you know having a really open inclusive dialogue around prioritization around um, principles, what's really, really important, around um, how decisions are made, who makes decisions, when they get made, um, and thinking about some of the capabilities that are really, really critical. So, you know, always looking to learn, being connected to really good information sources, um, being, you know, looking at creating value in everything that you do, looking to move information to insight. There, There are some core leadership skills and capabilities that you can develop and you can focus on them quite individually and I, I do talk about them actually in Shapeshifter and, and how you can focus on them and there are some that are more when you're trying to cope with disruption and there are others that are almost the cherry on the uh, cake when you're actually trying to become a disruptor but there are some particular beha- behaviors that you see in leaders that are able to do that well um, and again they're not they're not surprising you know, you, you read the list and they're like, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> you know, vulnerability, you know, they're, they're dedicated to things. They, they fall in love with. A, so one of the biggest things is rather than trying to, um, you know, create a particular solution. So I know we're talking about culture and this is kind of more about wicked problems, but actually culture can be a wicked problem in an organization. Rather than trying to get to a particular solution, they fall in love with the problem. And they spend their time just playing around in the problem. Um, and therefore they make shifts in the problem rather than getting really attached to one particular solution that isn't going to happen or can't happen. So it's, it's, it's all of this stuff kind of fits together. All four of those moves come together and all feed each other. Um, and that's kind of the magic of it, to be honest. But in terms of culture, it's having conversations that are uncomfortable. It's allowing people to ask really awkward questions. It's really listening to um, maybe what you don't want to hear. Yeah. Across, and I mean, in projects and programs, I know I've been involved in a few where you've got a crowd of people over here screaming that there's a problem. And everyone's like, oh, I didn't hear that. I'm, you know, we're, we're not listening to that. And you can see three months before it happens um, where something's going to go wrong. I'm sure I'm sure you've all had that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I love you said it earlier that culture is talked about, but um, not thought about. And maybe that's if, if if there's one thing maybe around that that those listening should take away is maybe that is stop talking about it, think about it, and how you actually want to implement it. But you you mentioned wicked problems and wicked thinking. You create yeah. um, also the last point or, or or move number four is creating magical movements. Um, but I'll I'll hand to Val um, to either comment on what we've spoken about or get his take on on the the move number three and four. Val. <laughs> yeah. No. I thank you. Before we go into that, I think there's some really good interesting pieces of, of value that you were talking about. I was just listening and, and writing notes, um, but I really like the idea of a meta tribe. I think uh, a lot of the time 
we try to understand, at least on projects, my, my experience is we, we try to make the problem transactional yeah. when it's got nothing to do with the work and everything to do with the people. And I think understanding that the meta tribes or these, these groups of people that are trying to deliver their section of the project uh, actually is, is the key point. And I, I, I'll shout out to Colin D. Ellis as well, who also has a book, Culture Fix. Uh, we had him on the show and I think we'll have him on again talking about that very piece is that we just, and if we are approaching the middle leadership team, I think that's a really good idea as well. We, we need to somehow tap into that, that culture. And we all know happy people are productive workers, right? That, that seems to be something that a lot of leadership need to go to training for. So you have these senior leaders, they'll go to training, they'll come back, you go, you know what? I've got to empower my people. That's what I've got to do. Like you didn't know that already? Yeah. That, yeah. It blows my mind that that's yeah. already something that you had to go and get paid training for. And now you feel like you're empowered to empower the people. And uh, I just thought that was really interesting. But another observation about the, I guess, the, um, the whole COVID experiment, what do you want to call it? It's a really interesting. So from a psychology perspective, it's a, it's a really interesting time to be alive. Yeah, it uh, it's, um, it, it's the way that it suppresses behavior and the way that it's allowing people to adapt really quickly that I find interesting. So on the one hand, you've got this massive concern about isolation and obviously this impacts culture, right? This is perfect, uh, Debbie, from a psychology, psychology experiment. But then on the other hand, you've got this rapid adaption adoption and empathy i find that really really interesting because you've got it you've got both ends there where people are suffering but they're also being empowered and liberated because they can work from home yeah. they feel like they've got access to people when they need them our leaders are a lot more empathetic and patient you know you can have trusting. your dog run in and you're more trusting. exactly right yeah exactly so you know i'd just love to get your i mean we are just having a conversation rather than a question i'd just love to get your observations on that yeah, I, th I think it has been a really interesting, horrific in places, but, you know, really interesting um, experience to live through. Um, there's, there's definitely a tendency, I think, or there's the potential for a tendency to all snap back to where we were. And um, you're already seeing that in some, I mean, UK's perfect example. Um, you know, you're already seeing that in, in some areas. And yeah, there are some bits that, you know, may, maybe we should snap back to, but there's been a real shift in terms of, you, you hear people talk about psychological contract. And again, it's another one of those phrases that get, gets bandied around. There's been a massive shift in that psychological contract where people previously um, weren't able to prove that they could be effective remotely, that they yeah. couldn't, you know, do anything collaboratively remotely. It's, it's been proven you know, under the toughest of circumstances. In fact, some organizations I work with who measure their productivity have seen it go up, um, you know, in a measurable way. So that, that genie is out of the bottle and people will expect a different kind of relationship with the organizations and the leaders they work with. They'll expect that trust. And I think if it's not coming towards them, you know, there's, there's going to be some cynicism because people will be like, well, hang on, you trusted me when the organization needed me mm. to kind of do this. Uh, so I think there's some interesting stuff there. The other thing I think with, with culture, particularly like meta tribes, and as all of this starts to change again, as, as we're going through it, there's, you know, we're storytellers 
human beings are storytellers. It's, it's how we make sense of the world. We create a narrative. We hear narratives. Where there isn't a narrative, we fill a vacuum with a narrative. And a lot of culture, if we really think about it, is the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that we hear, um, the heroes that we look up to, the legends that are repeated, you know, all of that kind of stuff that is not beanbags, um, free breakfast, um, posters on walls. Now, don't get me wrong, all of that stuff's great, but mm. culture is actually about that. And if, if the culture that you're asking people to engage with and really get involved with is different to what they're seeing. So, you know, they're kind of looking up, particularly in the organization, they're seeing a different set of behaviors or values as they're looking up. Words and figures differ and the cynicism starts to creep in. And that's where you see it all fracturing. So there, again, it's, mm. it's really important everyone's involved, but there is this piece around as a senior leadership team, you know, it, it kind of starts and stops there. If that senior leadership team is not demonstrating the elements of culture that, is in, that they feel is important, it's not going to continue. Um, it's not going to become aligned. It's, it's not going to, you're not going to get that magical movement. You're not going to get that um, kind of progression and, and that speed. And again, if you look around you in, in the pandemic situation, there's so many examples of that just in terms of how governments have acted and how certain bodies have acted and so on. You can see how, you know, something's happened and people are like, well, hang on a minute, I've been asked to do this and you're doing that. Um, it, you know, it creates, it creates dissonance and not necessarily healthy dissonance. However, disagreement is good. So dissonance that's um, cognitive dissonance that is because there's a mismatch in behavior um, isn't necessarily good. But disagreement where someone turns around and says, I, you know, I, I struggle with that. Can we talk about it? That's good because that's where you get to a new shared understanding of the culture that you're trying to create. So there's, there's lots to it. It's, a lot of it is conversation stories, legends, heroes, you know, that kind of stuff where you can get really excited about what's going on around you. Yeah, we need some um, fables, don't we? And some, yeah. some new, new heroes for the 21st century. And I think you're right. There's a it is, I think it's, there still needs to be more emphasis on that culture piece. I, I still find that's probably the root cause of a lot of problematic issues that are systemic across projects. It's actually it's got nothing to do with identity, which I find interesting, right? When you look at some of the misinformation that's spread out across the internet uh, and the, the lack of facts, and then you realize that you can actually have a multicultural society we do this in projects these are mini meta tribes yeah and we have diversity of thought we have inclusivity and we have equality projects do have some ranks but generally most most of the new projects are somewhat flattened you can get access to most senior leadership now and so i think there is some type of movement which is great but uh, but it certainly needs to be uh encouraged across all projects to make sure that you're not doing it just because it's a it's a box that you need to tick yeah like culture isn't a linear transactional arrangement these are real people who have other lives other than work who have value sets and i think that you know if you if there was layers to culture the inside of culture would be trust right and it's like this it's like slime my daughters play with the slime all the time right and it's very it's very viscous it's it's always shape-shifting as you said perfect idea for a book right 
and it's always moving and changing shape and you've really got to manage it. Uh, and it, there's a bit of trade-off and there's a bit of sacrifice and there's a bit of suffering. But if you can, then you can scale it. And I think it's a little bit like that where I think that maybe project management traditionally hasn't really surfaced as a, as a means to deliver that. So hopefully people get out there and buy your book, Debbie. One more question around this uh, culture piece. Devolve leadership. What does that mean? So everybody in the organization is acting as a leader. They feel like they are a leader in the organization. So it's not hierarchical anymore. So, um, so going back to what you said just a moment ago about shape-shifting yeah, in a, in a culture, in all of it, to even keep up with the world as it changes, you want to be shape-shifting. Yeah? If, even if your culture remains static, it will become stagnant. So again, even with culture, people have an outcome they're looking for. So you want to be shape-shifting. And the most powerful way to do that in any of these areas is for everyone to be involved and feel like they have some influence and feel like um, they can create and you know make a difference and, and so on. So the more developed an organization gets in terms of the way that they apply these four moves, the less control you see, actually. So they go through five stages. So in the book, there's, there's a maturity model. And um, like with any maturity model, you know, there's kind of level five that's shape-shifting. Now that's not appropriate for all organizations at whatever stage they're at. It might be way too big a jump. Um, you know, they might be at an earlier point in their um, evolution. But most organizations kind of get to that midpoint of being very structured and they get stuck. They get really stuck there. And I think projects and programs, are, again, are a perfect example of this. They get stuck in, we have to operate this way. You know, a lot of the concepts around Agile are fabulous. But I talk to some organizations where it's almost become, you, you can't possibly operate, you can't play around with how Agile works. It doesn't evolve. Um, it's either agile or it's not. And it's like, well, hang on, there must be things that you might want to play with in this particular environment that might work better. So, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of challenging that. So many organizations get stuck in that structured phase, um, particularly big corporates or scale-ups and scale-ups when they're getting to that corporate stage, they kind of get stuck there. But the ones that are really shape-shifting have lost, it, it, you said identity and it's exactly that. They have identity, but they're willing to almost like a, an individual grow that identity and evolve that identity and become a different person. So become a different organization over time, which helps them to pivot, helps them to pirouette in this kind of situation. Um, and that, you know, the, the need for control, the need for hierarchy starts to drop away because everyone is there aligned around a particular cause, a particular purpose, knows the principles around which they're um, operating and making decisions and so on, and has that level of autonomy gradually, safely, you know, within, within sensible kind of guide rails. Um, and you end up with almost like quantum physics, you end up with spooky action at a distance, you know, where you get kind of two people at very different points in an organization um, yeah. that normally would be perhaps quite siloed if it was a structured, you know, very, very structured way of operating, that just do what needs to be done just connect and do what needs to be done without needing to be told, without needing to check 50 times. And so there's risk in that. There is risk in that. There is danger in that. 
But to be honest, from my experience, there's more risk in not doing it. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, yeah that's exactly right. I, I think we're on the same page there. The other thing is, I think personality has something to do with that devolved leadership. So we, we talked about inclusivity and diversity of thought and getting getting those people that are, you know, self-initiating, like you said, you, you just, I, I, I kind of say set and forget. You know, Dale is probably the best example of that where he knows what he has to do. Last thing he needs is his leader or his manager telling him to do it, uh, do this A, B, and C, uh, or even do it a different way. Because leaders, I think, should be outcome-focused and they should let whoever works for them figure that out for themselves, hopefully. Um, but I just wanted to, you know, and I, I want to shout out to anyone with ADHD because I think this is your time. This is your prime and limelight to to be a shapeshifter because I think they they really get it. Uh, they're always on the lookout for something new and shiny. And I think I certainly identify with being a disruptor, Debbie. And I wonder, is too much disruption a good thing for projects or can it be detrimental to the, the culture, the flow, the performance? Yeah, so again, it kind of depends where you're at as an organization and where you're at in terms of um, programs and projects that are running. But um, you know, it's important to have those guide rails. So the principles around which you're operating. So if you've, if, if in, a, in a major transformation program, you've got a sense of the disruption the transformation is trying to navigate or the disruption it's trying to create in the market, because some programs are about, okay, we're gonna change the way this organization goes to market or, or whatever. Um, you've got that, you've got a sense of, okay, how do we want to do that in terms of values and approaches and so on? And this is the, the problem that we're grappling with to make that happen. Then you've got some guide rails around that. Um, and it often, it's actually more challenging to get people to um, be very creative and be very disruptive than it is to reel them back. So because of the way that we've, you know, been conditioned in, in corporate life, we kind of, most, most people go in and kind of look for the rules. Um, and actually quite often the ones that do very, very well are the ones that don't um, sometimes look for the rules and, and stumble across something and become positive um, deviants really and, and, you know, find something spectacular. Sometimes that can be a problem, but most people tend to follow the rules. So when you're trying to think really, you know, you're trying to think quite expansively and you're trying to be quite creative. Often that's more of a um, challenge for people than the opposite. So it often snaps back almost too quickly and you need to try and push it out again. And, and it's almost, it's important to kind of set the context as well. You know, at this moment, we're wanting to be very expansive. At this moment, we kind of just need to get on with it. And that's okay. But most um, or many um, organizations, programs, and so on at the moment probably don't spend quite enough time in the expansive bit if they go there. Yeah. yeah. So you can switch it on, switch it off a little bit, um, but it, it just doesn't get switched on quite often. No, you, and you are correct. I think as well, there's this kind of quantum entanglement when you do have those productive vibes that, that people do just kind of crack on with it, even if the rules don't fit the narrative you know or even if they don't fit the, the requirements you know if the pace is set at five on the scale and the process gets you to a two what do you do to scale up you can't use the same process no. to run at the speed that the business or the client's asking you to and so then you have to break the rules in order to meet the objectives and you need <clears throat> rule breakers 
good yeah. stuff. We're yeah. on a good start here. This is great. Yeah. And there's so. something you were saying earlier about breaking. Yeah. So, you know, if a program or a project's broken and stopping to fix it, um, and that actually you carry on, it kind of gets more and more broken. Sometimes the more worrying thing happens it kind of gets fixed in transit because people are really good at that. People are really good at, at turnaround. They're good at, you know, kind of patching something up and getting it to work, but you're still heading in absolutely the wrong direction because everything's changed. So, you know, I often say to people, there's two reasons why you should absolutely stop and have a really good look at what's going on. One is if your results, if you've, you know, you've got that outcomes focused and the results from your feedback loops are telling you that something different is going on than what you expected. And the other one is if your strategic context in which you're operating as an organization, program, whatever, fundamentally changes. So in essence, every single program and project over the last 18 months really ought to take a breather, have a really good look, because the world's changed around them completely. If, if that would be a big piece of advice I say to all your listeners, if you, if you haven't done that, it's really important that you do because the world's changed massively. It's still changing. The, sh the sun's shifting underneath our feet as we're talking. And that three-year program might be headed in absolutely the wrong direction for that changed world. Very, very, very wise words. I was thinking while you're talking there, Debbie, of this hugely complex maze. And if you put your pen down, not a pencil that you can rub out, and you're going as fast as you can to the maze, but you don't know where you're heading and you're not stopping, why not just stop at a point and go, am I headed in the right direction? Yeah. And that's kind of the, I, I, I do well with visualization. So that's what I was thinking of. Um, but you mentioned, um, I, I love the fact that you've got a book and, you know, Jack Dougal's got one as well. Uh, Colin D. Ellis as well around this because Val and I have spoken before that, you know, the likes of the PM Bach, et cetera, they don't talk about this stuff. They talk about the theory of how to deliver projects. Yeah. They're not actually, you know, all the other stuff that actually makes that theory work. And this is what we're talking about today. It's a hugely, hugely important aspect. And I think it's actually a, a very um, untapped resource in projects, a powerful resource that's really, really untapped. So thanks for sharing that. Um, and we've often spoken about, you know, having healthy debate or constructive tension rather than destructive tension on projects. It's, it's required. Um, but again, if you have that sort of safe environment in which you can operate that culture, then it's okay. But um, just to correct you, Val, you said, I know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. My tactic is I surround myself with people that know what they're doing and it makes good, me look good. good. Answer. You know, good that, is, that, is the, that is the answer. You pass. That was the test. You passed it. Well done. Thanks, Val. But also, you know, you gave a shout out to people with ADHD. I think you are an example of someone that's used that element of yourself, of your character to your advantage. As you said, you're comfortable with disruption and chaos. And, you know, often people, I think we've said it before, when you get a label, right? People feel that label is sort of a weight on their shoulders. We actually no, it's, it's actually something you should turn into a, you know, a weapon. And I think you've done that well. So kudos to you. But I just wanted to get on to move number three, Debbie, um, and try and peel back the layers. We like onion analogies on this podcast, or rabbit holes, or nuggets, whichever one, <laughs> or triangles. We, we love all triangles. Them, um, we can't do a triangle with yours because it's four. It's four sides. It's four right. moves. But anyway. Your four box um, model and really upset everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, Wicked problems and wicked thinking. So 
you explain it briefly and I think everyone gets the concept, but if we try and get into a bit of the detail, I'd really love if you could share some of the tools, tips, and techniques around wicked thinking. So that's all well and good, Debbie. You know, let's go look yeah. for those wicked problems. Yeah. Let's go find them. That's easy to identify that one we can't solve. So let's tackle it. Okay. Now I've got to think wickedly around it. How do I do that? Now we've spoken to um, a range of guests uh, last season around, you know, change management. We spoke about De Bono, et cetera. Are there any ones that are out there that, you know, perhaps people haven't heard of that aren't mainstream um, or are the ones that people do know of really good, yet they're not applying them properly? Um, I, I think anything that gets you to think about an issue in a way that you wouldn't have thought about it is helpful, right? So De Bono, um, Disney Model, all of those sorts of things are really, really helpful because they shift you out of the mode that you would normally take in terms of thinking. Um, before you even start, before you even start, one of the biggest things is inclusivity. So making sure that you've got a real diversity of approaches and experiences and values even and um, just levels of hierarchy, you know, complete um, diversity in the room when you are starting to try and think about a wicked problem. Coming at it from a place where you're not trying to solve it, so you're not getting stuck on a solution, you are just really diving into it. And then the things that I think can really help are looking at um, you know, the history, look at the story of the problem, how's it come about, look at you know, all, the, all the stuff that you would sensibly look to do, um, you know, look at who are the main people that are involved, try and get different, um, try and understand each of those perspectives. So that's where the disagreement is good comes in. You, you actually want to hear from all of those different perspectives, looking for where you're getting surprising results. So possible positive deviance, looking for areas where you're seeing positive things happening where they perhaps shouldn't be, or they haven't previously, what's going on there. Um, and then doing things like, you know, five why model, just asking the question, why, 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 why? So you get below symptom, you start to get towards cause um, particular on particular things and understanding that wicked problems, they come as a web, unfortunately. So you're, if you're working on one wicked problem, it's gonna be attached horizontally to lots of other wicked problems. And um, it's probably in a hierarchy of um, different wicked problems. So it's important to understand that. So things like systems thinking, can be really useful you know even using systems diagrams to work out the positive loops the negative loops the delays um that that occur in some of those systems um thinking about theories like complexity theory um complex adaptive systems and how they work you know how different agents in their work different individuals and organizations do they have a role where they are delivering performance where they're creating something, delivering something? Do they have an evaluation and governance role? Do they have a role where they are, you know, creating new hypotheses and testing those? Um, and th there's loads of tools, you know, around sort of design thinking, dialogue mapping, lots of things that you can use just to mix that up. Um, and one of the things I, again, I use in wicked problems thinking is the what if worlds. So although that's kind of, you know, really important to strategy discussions and formulation 
if you pick that tool up and use it in with your problems and you say, okay, we've got, we think we understand this, which is always a very dangerous thing to say, but we think we understand this. And then you say, but if we put it in that potential future world, how does it change? Does it change? Um, is it still relevant? You know, does it suddenly not become a problem anymore? Are there new problems? Um, you suddenly find that you've got a different perspective on it as well. And bringing people in that are maybe experts in very different things. So cross-sector, you know, you've, you've got a wicked problem in aviation. Go and talk to food manufacturing. Go and talk to retail. Go and talk to, you know, go and talk to financial services. And because there'll be different problems, mm. but they might be quite similar. It's a bit like if you've run um, lots of programs, they might be very, very different programs, but quite often you can, you can spot issues quite quickly because you've kind of seen something like it before it's it's not the same but you've seen something um so it kind of hones you in so you know looking for levers that you can leverage looking you know there's there's lots of things that that you can do and the most important thing is to think very differently to how you would normally think and how you've thought up until now because what's created the problem the thinking that's created the problem very rarely is the thinking that shifts the problem in a positive way yeah, yeah. the the one technique that I love is the Covey or Covey, whoever, however you like to pronounce his, his surname, Stephen Covey, Stephen Covey, third alternative, because it's simple and I'm a simple person. Um, so if you've, if you've never heard of that business, go out and just Google the third alternative. And it's a great way to think outside the box as well. I like the boner as well, because Val brought it in when we worked together and we got the whole team around and we were all sitting in the common area with these different colored hats yeah, on, and we're swapping it, yeah. them. Yeah. We're saying that we, co we couldn't do it today in the COVID world because you can't share anything. But um, we were actually doing that and people were like, what are you doing? You're just wearing these baseball caps with different colored hats on. Yeah. Like, yeah, it works. It works because it's something physical you can attach to and you actually get into that persona. Um, but I think, you know, we've spoken about, we've mentioned it, people have heard a lot about, you know, diversity of thought. And I think what you've just done is you've brought it to life, right? That's what it means, diversity of thought. So coming back to, you know, what you said earlier, where it's talked about, but not thought about, yeah. this is this is where you do your thinking, ladies and gentlemen, listen to us and implement it and listen to Debbie and read her book. So you, you can't be creative without diversity of thought. Yeah. Yeah. You, you and, and even in your own mind, you struggle to be I, I do some um fiction writing try to um and that really helps actually because the kind of processes you go through there um you have to put yourself in you you're creating characters you're creating so you're almost having arguments with yourself in your head you know and that's helpful it can it can put you in a dark room you know needing needing a lie down but it, it's helpful to sit there and just really challenge your own way of thinking about things or find people that think very differently to you and and just talk things through it might be really uncomfortable but it's really really powerful and you you really get underneath some of the assumptions that are being made yeah. and you know the things that we're not even aware of so again in strategy wicked problems as well there are often a whole bunch of assumptions that are made that have to be true for a strategy to be successful, similar with a program or a project, a whole bunch of assumptions that have to be there 
for it to be successful. And quite often when you actually have a really good look, they're, they're not true or, or they've changed or, and you know, those are the kind of conversations that are really, really important. Yeah, no, very, very well put. Val, I want to bring you back in for move number four, unless you have any comments on move number three before we move on. <laughs> so many movings. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, um, look, I'd, I'd like to add to the, to, the, to the list of techniques and I think shout out to Simon White and I think Gary Wong as well. Theory of constraints where, yes. you know, you're looking for that bottleneck, that limiting factor. Uh, but it, again, again it, it is talking transactionally and I think that there's a crossover between transaction and, and culture. And I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I think we're going to have to have you come on another time and, and go next level there, down and, and talk about you know, these more in specifics, because I think people really do want to hear how they apply and how they learn, how they grow, how they become adaptive leaders. And I think this is a really good subject matter. So let's get into number four, movements. Is that right? What yeah. kind of movements? We talk about moves, but we mean movements as in yeah. shifting people's mindsets, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hearts and minds. Um, and it sounds really cliched. Yeah. Um, let's create a movement. Um, but actually if, if you're wanting to achieve a strategy or you're wanting a program or a project to deliver the outcomes that it's there to deliver, you've got to create some kind of movement, some kind of um, shift and um, get people behind that and get people believing in it and so on. So, and this is where that kind of speaking action at a distance comes in. So it's really pulling everything together in such a way that it just ignites and um, you, you know, activity is kind of happening without you having to ask for it to do so. It, it's, you know, um, seek forgiveness rather than permission because you have got those guide rails in and it, it's got a momentum of its own. And it's different in different organizations. So again, people say sometimes like, well, how do you, how do you create a movement? It's like, well, it completely depends on the organization, what it is you're trying to achieve, the kind of culture that you have, the issue that you're working with, where you start from. So, you know, um, what's actually the state that you start from um, really has an impact on what you might do to create that. But a lot of it, to, to your point earlier, Val, is, is culture huge amount of it so the strategy and the wicked problem are really important critical and the cause is you know if you've got a cause at the center of it it's really really important but actually it's about the stories the legends the heroes the and that creates a galvanized kind of sense of yeah we're on a journey together and it's an important journey and we're achieving something and if, if you look around at organizations that um do this well you hear stories about how their culture is very, very different. Um, a lot of them are in tech. Yeah, um, mm. and, and you know that's maybe because some of the innovative mind and, and so on. So, but if, if you look across some of those organizations, that's what they're doing. They've, they've got heroes. Um, they've got um, you know, fascinating stories that they can tell about how they've come about and the steps they've taken and what they've learned along the way and how they keep learning and the cause that is absolutely central to them. And it's a real cause. It's not just a, um, a veneer of a cause that's covering over. Actually, we're here to make money. Um, it's a cause that incidentally makes money. 
and that sounds very altruistic, but the ones that really do well, that's typically what, what's going on. Someone's absolutely fallen in love with something really, really important and powerful, and it's got the ability to bring people along with it. And the movement isn't just confined to people that work for the organization. So it goes beyond the organization's borders and, um, you know, people, they're, they're fans. There's a big fandom, um, clients, suppliers, everyone wants to be part of the story. They want to be close yeah. to it. It's, you know, it's almost like it's a celebrity. They, they want to be there. Yeah, hundred percent. I think the, well, actually, why don't we, I'll play devil's advocate. Again, maybe third perspective, because there is three of us here, but, but, you know, taking another step of this movement is, so we talked about diversity of thought, we talked <clears> about <throat> inclusivity and equality, and how that's important for culture, but also how you stem ideas and, 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 and without going straight into solution mode, that's how you kind of drive probably projects in the right direction, let's say. Is there ever a case where movements can be part of the problem? And I'm obviously thinking wider than projects here, but it almost becomes sectarian in this way, like separatist in its yeah. movement. It, yeah. it probably it diverges from its own intent uh, and it gets carried away with itself. A bit like mob mentality, right? Yeah. I've seen some crazy things happen on projects like, and it's definitely around tools, Debbie. Like let's say for some reason, someone's just dead set on a particular software that has to be rolled out and gets a lot of momentum behind it and you can't stop it. Now, technical, I mean, software is one, one option, but there's obviously lots of different examples of that. What do we do about that when movements go the wrong way? How do we stop them? Yeah, so this comes back to, so to stop, to stop can be challenging because you've got a momentum going, right? And, and we can all think of movements outside of corporate that have really got out of hand and created some, you know, horrible outcomes. Um, so yes, it does have the potential for that. And it does have the potential for, you know, the hero at the top becoming almost deity and, um, you know, all of, all of the stuff that goes with that. So the two things I mentioned, well, the two things I mentioned earlier in terms of, you know, is something delivering the outcomes that you wanted and has the fundamental structure of the strategic environment around you changed are good checks. Um, but actually, other moves are really important here and leadership is really important here. So if, you, if you've got a movement that is just kind of, um, it, it's taken off and it's gone off in its own direction, you could get very, very lucky. It could be the right thing. It could be, um, you know, doing exactly um, the things that will create positive outcomes over a period of time and get lucky in terms of whichever future arrives. I sound like some kind of dystopian movie. Um, maker now but you know um but if you haven't done that strategic thinking up front and thought around okay what are these potential futures what are our options what is it we want to achieve and what's the cause we want to be working with and what's the difference we want to make to this cause you are much more likely to have a movement go off the rails go in the wrong direction or get taken over by something very unhelpful yeah, or, yeah. or yeah. unchangeable or rigid or so on. And that's um, why it's so important that at that strategic level in a program or in an organization, there are loops, there are constant loops around to say, okay, what are we noticing horizon scanning? What are we noticing in terms of our outcomes? Um, what's changing? What are we seeing in terms of the futures that are coming about? And what are we seeing in our culture? Is it healthy? 
Um, mm. And again, you can, so even recently in the press, there have been, um, without naming names, but you know, there's recently been one, um, a beer company hasn't there, that's you know, been accused of having quite an interesting culture and so on. Um, and you can, I mean, no one knows the truth. I've, I've not worked in that company or, or with that company. And there are other, many other examples similar, but you can kind of see how that can happen in a founder started organization mm -hmm. that probably, you know, it maybe hasn't got so many checks around it. And maybe, you know, you can see how in an organization, a founder um, ceases to be challenged by people around them. Yeah. yeah so no. They've said that we will do it rather than yeah. hang on a minute. Shall we ask the question? So it's it's that's where that devolved leadership comes in, really, really importantly. If people feel able to challenge, ask a difficult question, be awkward in a positive way, they're all checks and balances to it. But but that's in quite a sophisticated organization. You know, to, to begin with, you have to structure it. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I, I actually think now you mentioned devolved leadership again. I think from my interpretation it's, it's be, being a democratic leader. I think I used to call it where, you know, there was, everyone gets a voice, everyone's at the table, everyone has an opinion uh, and they're all heard to some degree. Uh, yeah. You're still willing to take a decision. You're mm, still willing to say, yeah. I've heard you, but we're doing this and here's why, mm. but you, you listen in attentively and you take it all on board and, you know, where you can, you broaden out that decision as well. Well, here's where the movement makes sense, right? If if there's a common why, and that might, might lead back to this, the strategy piece. Oh, I'm starting to put your book together now, Debbie. This is all fitting together really well. So like <laughs> you can have a movement uh, that can go either way, right? That can become wicked. Or if we've got the right strategy, can in fact be a positive shift for the business. And so those, those elements are really nicely fit together. You've, you've obviously thought about this. So I... Appreciate that. And thank you for explaining that too. Cause I think, yeah, movements, movements need, they need purpose. They need direction uh, just like anyone else. And I think it's very easy these days to make a movement too, by the way, I think that's, that's one of the other scary facts about just getting people on board is that we're all very well connected now with the internet and that anyone with an idea, even if it's not a good one can get support and momentum. And before you know it, it's snowballing down a road that you do not want to go down. And sometimes you don't see the horizon. Sometimes you're just part of a movement because it sounds or feels good. And this is this meta tribe thing around culture. And yeah, it, it, it can be really, really damaging. I mean, I, we're bringing up kids in this world and some of the conversations I have, even though my kids are quite small, they're really difficult because I don't know the answers yet myself. I don't know. We're living in this history right now, if that makes sense to you. Mm, and uh yeah. And particularly in projects, I think, you know, we, we look at the success rate of projects at the moment. Nothing's really moved the needle significantly. And you have to ask yourself, okay, well, project management methodologies and all these other types of methods have been around for a long time and they must have worked at some point. But at some point in the past, there was an inflection point in which the way we manage projects changed and the methodologies didn't catch up. Not sure when that is, but someone could do the homework for me. That'd be great. Um, and I think then what happened was we started to kind of piece it together, but it is still piecemeals, right? We've got books like yours, Debbie. We've got a few other kind of champions down there advocating culture and 
and momentum and you know thinking about the people and diversity of thought but it i still don't feel like it's mainstream yet i still feel like if a company can get away with running a project multi-billion dollar project on spreadsheets and treat people like numbers they will and so i guess the last question i have before i hand off to dale is how do we incentivize the right behaviors is it the way we structure contracts is it the client's fault or are they partly to blame the way they demand from their contractors and so on is it a completely new methodology you know we just need to subscribe to uh debbie and co the the four moves and that would help you know that just mandate that on as many projects as possible i'd love to hear your point, points on that yeah so i think the first caveat i would say is this this is not written sort of focused on projects and programs right having having been close to a lot of projects and programs and led um quite a number it's not written from that perspective it's written much more from an organizational perspective but having been close to a lot of programs and projects there's no getting away from the fact that all four of these moves would be very helpful and very very powerful within them the same issues um prevent these things happening in programs and projects as prevent them happening in strategic discussions around, you know, what direction do you want the organization to go in and, and how do we want to get there? And, and they're, they're completely, um, you know, locked together actually, because that's exactly what programs do most of the time, particularly the, the really big ones. They're about change. They're about strategy achievement. So um, it is about helping people to see um the potential risks the potential downsides so you, you know in a program you'll do a, a risk register won't you and you'll keep a real good eye on that and you'll be highlighting them and you you know you have your rag status in terms of what's being achieved and, and so on and so forth i think we kind of need to up the ante there and talk about the really big risks of going in absolutely the wrong direction or not spotting um the potential the opportunity the risk the, the disruptor that's in a completely different sector to us that's walking in. So a few examples there. Um, and, and these are examples kind of from history. So if you think, you know, Kodak, for example, you might, I'm sure you've heard of the Kodak story where um, one of the guys actually invented digital photography, went and told his boss and his boss turned around and said, keep that quiet. We don't know anyone, anyone else to know about it because we yeah. want to operate in film, right? Thinking that no one else would ever invent it. That, that was an interesting lesson. And if you look at the history of Kodak after that, um, an interesting case study. Um, Blockbusters yeah. and Netflix, yeah? Yes. So Netflix started sending out DVDs by post and then started streaming. Now, the very first indications of that, I'm gonna show my age now. I can remember coming home, um, midweek one evening and uh, I used to watch Dynasty years ago I'm giving way too much away here and um, <laughs> I, I remember getting home and Dynasty was on us what hang on it's not on on a Wednesday night and it's not on at this time and then getting really excited because my dad had bought a video recorder okay and I, I was about 12 13 at the time and that was a big deal you know you, you didn't have to watch the telly at the time the tv times told you you had to watch the telly and you didn't have to miss your program that was the point at which streaming, as we now know it, was born. In hindsight, the minute that we were able to see that we didn't have to watch it when someone told us to watch it, how many people watch scheduled TV now? Very, very few. So, you know, spotting these 
things and showing some of the the big misses that organizations have made or or change programs have made and you look at what's going on around you at moment at the moment you know john lewis they are moving into property mm. interesting mm. yeah so you know if you're if you're in retail your kind of head goes up and thinks that's interesting um you know, electric vehicles coming along, what's going to happen to vehicle manufacturing, car leasing, vehicle insurance. Um, so if, if you, if you start talking at that kind of level, the risk register that sometimes can be quite dry, can't it? You know, I've kind of sat through a, a number of risk meetings in my time and it, you know, it's, you're struggling at times to um, keep going with it because it can be pages. And, and lots of people kind of explaining why it's not a risk or why they've downgraded it or whatever. If you lift that right up into actually, you know, here are the really big ones. We might not be here anymore. Or, or the market we operate in might not be here anymore. Um, sometimes people start listening, not all the time, you know, some, some people aren't ready for that conversation, but sometimes people start listening. And that's where I think you can start having the conversation as a project or a program manager to say, you know, I think, I think we need some options here. This might be the right way, but I think we need to think about, you know, what are some of the other directions and how we would keep an eye out to see if we need to switch or we need to flip. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's perfectly well, well placed and, and much better said than I would ever try, uh, Debbie. But I think these, these, yeah, it's just a really interesting uh conversation around all these pieces coming together as well i think after the last hour you probably have to go back and listen to it again and really uh, break it up break it apart but the strategy piece is great and i just i wanted to leave you before i go to dale uh, someone who you know, shout out to alfredo who who spoke to me about strategy in general and like there's he had this view of the picture and it was a big dance floor the end of the old dance floors with the fancy dresses and, and the big chandeliers a big hall big dance hall and there was two positions. There was, you're either the dancer or you're on the balcony looking down at the dancers. And he said, you need to change between the two. And I think this is, this is the great dance around VUCA, I guess we could call it, in mm. projects where sometimes you're on the floor, you know, you're dancing along, but you can't see the dance floor. You can't see the people, you know, you're literally just looking at your partner and maybe a few people around you. You've got a very small peripheral. Um, but then when you shift to strategy, and this is where I think this is a really good analogy because I know Dale likes these too. You go back onto the balcony, you can see the entire dance floor and where everyone's moving. Like you said, you know, the Netflixes and, and even Nokia was a great case study that I did once um, from my uh, MBA. So th these companies that just didn't move fast enough too, I think they, they kind of knew it was coming and they resisted the urge to change direction and be what if, yeah. you know, what if this did become a thing? What if uh, yeah. we need, we do need to change directions? And An experiment. You can run little experiments on yeah. the side. You don't have to shift everything. That's the other thing. People think we've got to mm. shift everything. No, just run a little experiment on the side and see what happens with it. Yeah, it's frustrating when everyone decides that they want to do this big bang approach and you're like, why? That is the most riskiest thing you could do. Uh, but if you can see it, it, I mean, back to strategy, if you see it further enough, if you've got enough kind of uh, visibility into the future, you know, prediction, you go, well, if we start now small, in five, 10, you know, there's this compounding return of value. Maybe we will be in the right position. Uh, but if you don't start now, uh, you're in big trouble. And I think what, what's challenging a lot of, at least my clients, as well as, as a lot of people in the world, is that, that ability to see what the future looks like now is, is a little bit impeded by the fact that 
every day is new and different. And we are, yeah. we are struggling with, with that forecastability. In, in some ways, in some, I mean, it's a horrible situation, but in some ways, the way that it's affected our psyche and that can be quite helpful because we kid ourselves, we can predict the future, we can't. So the things we think are going to happen, um, if you're actually really honest with yourself, quite often they don't, or they happen in a slightly different way. But we, we kind of, we really do kid ourselves. And, and that's the danger of having that really rigid strategy or that really, really rigid approach. So in some ways, what's going on kind of makes us realize that actually we can't predict. We can, we can have some ideas about what might be going on. I'm just going to say, if, if your listeners want to hear um, if, if, if they're interested in horizon scanning and seeing things that are going on in, in different um, sectors, I run a podcast called The What If Tribe. So What If Tribe, it's on um, Apple and Spotify and all of that. And that's what we do. I talk to people in different sectors and they're talking about what's coming, what what's coming over the horizon in terms of their tech or their sector. So, you know, we look at future of money, crypto, um, medicine, whatever. Um, so that might be interesting if people are trying to get that kind of holistic horizon scanning view. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Check out uh, What If Tribe with Debbie. Uh, Dale, love to you. Thanks, Val. Uh, Debbie, if you look close enough to that, at that dance floor when you're standing up from the audience, you'll see Val standing in line to get the chip in the back of his head from Elon Musk as well. Brilliant. Um, so he, he loves You're an early adopter, stuff. Val. I am indeed. I am <laughs> self-confessed. Absolutely. But no, um, I, I love just listening in to the conversations. It's amazing. But um, Debbie, this does bring us to a very special part of the podcast. It's called Defend the Indefensible. Okay. And this is where Mr. Martin Carriston enters stage left to take you through your paces. So Martin, over to you. Thanks, Dale. Uh, thanks, Debbie. It was a really interesting podcast. So you, you touched on Dale and Val's favorite subjects, um, disruption, innovation, and even a, a clever analogy. So uh, <laughs> very, very enjoyable. No triangles, though, unfortunately. But yeah. uh, um, yeah, Still time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be scared. Okay. <laughs> Um, so yeah, as Dale mentioned, this is our guest feature called Defend the Indefensible. Uh, it's where we invite our guests to defend a ridiculous statement for 30 seconds. It's inspired by some of the ridiculous statements we've all heard over our careers. So if you're willing and keen, let's let's make a start. And I've got to defend it, not, defend it, not yeah. fight it. Okay. okay. Defend 30 seconds <laughs> up to. So. so Debbie, your statement to defend is, we've always been in a VUCA world. And sticking to an autocratic, rigid structure has served us well. Defend. <laughs> um, because we're still here. And because um, my pension is completely uh, defined benefits. And therefore, whatever I do right now, whatever goes wrong, isn't going to affect my pension whatsoever. Um, and actually, um, I don't want the disruption or the challenge of having to lead an organization or a program or a project through um, what's probably going to be quite difficult times and awkward conversations and maybe me having to take actions and show some vulnerabilities and show areas maybe that I haven't developed yet oh and that brings me on to I'd actually have to learn something so um, yeah I, I think we should stay exactly as we are um, we will you know end up 
being absolutely fine will be will be bought by somebody else and they'll buy our technology and they might uh, you know some of our people might get stupid across and they can have they can have the uh, difficult work of doing the change and and creating the future because i quite so, like the present brilliant thanks a lot for that <laughs> i'm not sure that was defending it i think it's probably I being quite cynical the stress but... <laughs> coming out there thanks a lot uh, before we go, got one more time for one more feature called Fiverr. Five quick fire questions, all about yourself. So, again, if you're willing and keen, let's let's make a start. Question one: Would you rather spend your day with people or technology? Oh, that's tough. Um, I'm quite an introvert, so um, depends depends on the people, and it depends if the technology is behaving. Um, <laughs> that's important and it depends on what type of technology so if it was Scrivener and I'm writing fiction technology okay <laughs> if it's not that people <laughs> thanks question two <laughs> what's more important time cost or quality time interesting because it gives you the opportunity to deal with the other two What's the best book you've been gifted? Oh, um, yeah, someone sent me a book called Surrender. Oh, I can't remember the name of the guy that wrote it. I'll have to tell you afterwards. But it was it was kind of about um, somebody that had um, basically surrendered and allowed, um, just kind of gone with the flow of, of what was going on around them and ended up well, ended up with a massive cause that they were driving and um, a big movement and, you know, a massive organisation they actually sold and did very well out of, um, finally. But I can't remember the guy's name, so I'll have to look it up for was you. That, was that the really, really good Surrender, book, Surrender. Experiment? Surrender Experiment? Is that the one? Might be. What's the name of the author? Michael Singer. That's the one. Michael A. Singer. There you I go. I think it is, yeah. The Surrender Experiment. Experiment. Yeah, I think it is. I will double check. Thanks. Yeah, I'll look, be sure to look that one up. Next question. What's the biggest mistake you made on a project? Uh, believing someone's project plan in MS Project for too long and then ultimately <laughs> saying to them, no, can you print it out and plot, please, and put it up on the wall and realizing that everything had been pushed back by about three months and we had this absolute wall of stuff um, that was all codependent that hadn't been done. Visual project management in action. There. Yeah, <laughs> long while ago, as you can imagine, with a gun, you know, a plot on the wall. But yeah, I can imagine. Last question: What profession, other than your own, would you like to have attempted? Um. So when I was at school, I wanted to be a nuclear physicist. Well. I mean, I was utterly incapable of doing that. Um, <laughs> author, if not author. You know, just just fiction author. Yeah. Oh, very good. Brilliant. Thanks a lot for that. Back to you, Dale. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Debbie. That was really interesting. Um, so you mentioned you, you've got a podcast. Uh, you've got two podcasts. So what's the other one called and what can listeners expect from that? Yeah. So, so what if Tribe I mentioned, which kind of looks at the future and what's coming. The other one is Shapeshifter Tribe um, that goes alongside the book. And there I talk to um, people that work for organizations that are doing these things or leaders that are um, showing game changer and game maker behaviors. So either navigating disruption or creating disruption. Um, that's, that's a more 
um, embryonic podcast, I, I think. But yeah, there's um, some interesting people on there for sure. I think that's our next podcast with Debbie Vell. How we Definitely. gamify projects. Anyway, oh, um, <laughs> a huge shout out to Tim Rudman as well for putting uh, you in touch with us, Debbie. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. It's been amazing. Yeah, um, we, we definitely love to have you back on, on any topic, really. And it's amazing that you've got your own podcast. So you've got all the sound equipment. You sound amazing as well. So thanks for that. But before we head off, any final thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with? Um, just be open, open to the future open minds enjoy it um i know it's not particularly enjoyable right now when you're kind of looking at the future but in every every situation there's risk and there's opportunity and sometimes we look at situations and think it's all bad or it's all good and most of the time there, there's a bit of good even if there's a lot of bad so yeah find that look for it awesome inspirational words vel final thoughts i think for the listeners and debbie i think the idea here is to become a self-initiator and self-educated so get out there a lot of the stuff and the problems we have in all these projects can can be solved um but i think you know see if you can find a reason to start a movement or maybe find that that culture and, and get a meta tribe going on uh and if you don't know how obviously debbie will guide you uh but it's been great to have you on the show debbie really really insightful thank you so much for your time yeah thanks for having me it's been great and if people do want to you know get in touch on linkedin or whatever and have a chat that's fine Awesome. Folks, get in touch with Debbie on LinkedIn. Check out both of her podcasts. Check out a book. It's on Amazon. You can go well, and I've get got, it. I've got it here. There you go. There it is. Oh, there it nice. is. Shapeshifters. <laughs> but we'll we'll post all the links in the show notes as well, listeners. So so go and have a look at those. That is all the time we have, folks. Remember to hit subscribe before you go. A massive thank you to Debbie Sunarayan. Yeah, I got it right as well, Val. Um, work and thank you all for listening till next time we say stay safe be disruptive and have fun doing it from me val and martin it's bye for now for more information blogs or to support our charities visit projectchatterpodcast.com and if you would like to sponsor the podcast get in touch via our website you can also leave us a voice message via our anchor page and let us know if there's something or someone specific that you would like on the podcast. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.